Writers have more stories to tell than those that are written on a page. Join me as I talk about my life, loves and inspiration behind my work so far and maybe even a sneak peek into stories yet to come. Hi, I'm Chris Tetrault-Blay and this is Dead Men Talk. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 8 of Dead Men Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in again and thank you for everyone who has been listening in to the series so far. Um, I mentioned at the end of the last episode with Jackie Rom that I would be spending a couple of weeks um, rather than talking about the, the story behind the World of More Apocalypse, uh, for I've already done that, um, actually sharing some of the the my favourite chapters, passages from the books, actually reading from within the pages of the World of More Apocalypse. Um, that was my goal for this week, but through actually doing some cleaning, um, actually going through a drawer in a, got a writing bureau in our bedroom, which is always knocked around, really, it's just been... We had the best of intentions of having a writing desk for me one day, but it's really just somewhere that we just put all the clutter which we don't actually know it's one of those clutter drawers except we got a whole clutter cabinet it seems um but while rifling through there the other day i actually came across something which stirred a lot more memories um actually it was something i forgot i did um i actually got a notebook and um, i've actually written some chapters proper chapters in there handwritten chapters of a book that i was working on right at the very beginning and it was actually around the time I was writing Acolyte that I was also writing what I wanted to be a science fiction, horror, alien, abduction style story. Um, and it's still there. It's still half written. It's gone through so many rewrites and changes. Um, and parts of it have actually ended up in the world of more apocalypse, and most specifically in the sewing season. So when I, I found this book and I, I found... It wasn't just notes like I do now. It's actually full on. I've properly written chapters in there. Some chapters have been lifted in their entirety or some sections have been lifted in their entirety and put into the sewing season. But some of some of it is actually still written as I was supposed to have it. Um, the book was called Chasing Grey. And it is it's one I'm still trying to work on. I still want to get it out there. I want to get it finished. I think this will, if anything, has the potential to be the the unwritten works you know when I finally cop it and I've got I leave behind an unfinished legacy this will probably be it um because I started writing this back in 2013 must have been it was it really was around the time that I started writing Acolyte I had the two going at once but I I I wrote a couple of scenes in particular were really I couldn't shake them from my mind so I had to write them down and as they were, they were the most chilling ideas of scenes that I think I've still had. I uh, haven't really topped the the emotion, the, the 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 feeling, the dread that came just by me picturing how this this story was going to pan out. So I wrote these scenes down with the intention of then padding it out, um, having the full story one day. Like I say, I borrowed bits from it and they have gone in. So it will never be released totally as I intended because obviously some bits of it now belong to another story. But what I found in this book were a couple of, I think two or three chapters which were, are still in their original form. I thought it might be quite nice to share these with you this week. Um, and then probably next week I'll pull out, I'll do one show for the World of More Apocalypse and I'll probably pull out a few um, like a chapter from each or a couple of chapters from each book just to give a breadth of the just give you all an idea of, of the actual story that lies within the trilogy as it's written but uh, but uh, no I thought I'd share this with you today so so what I'll do is I'll, I'll read what I can from this book um, I'll try and set the scene so from the sewing season I talked about a character called Jacob Crow and his girlfriend or his wife Millie um Tragedy befalls them. Millie is abducted, and it was really that that event 
that that scene which really struck a chord with me it was it, like I said I couldn't shake it and I was trying to trying to write other things and it's just the idea of being this 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 man who has everything he can want and then suddenly had it taken away from him in the most horrific manner the difference is that it's that in this book it was based around extraterrestrials it was a, it was a proper alien abduction x-files this is about as x-files as i thought i would get um it's written in the first person most of it as well which is i think something i changed the pits that i would have used in the sewing season i would have switched to third person because I, I don't think i've written first person until i got to poison in the well really um so yeah i hope you enjoy so again just to introduce this is going to be um, a reading from the original notes so by no means is this a final edited form of anything this is just a notebook i had with me in my car during the time that I was writing Acolyte, so right at the very beginning of my writing journey, this is the very first drafts of what was supposed to become Chasing Grey. But like I say, a couple of couple of parts ended up in the sewing season. But hey, one day, maybe the finished article will make it out in whatever form I can, if I can ever return to it and, and, and do it justice. So yeah, hope you enjoy it. Death always ends in a bright light, apparently. Or is that the beginning of it, with just darkness when the cruel fate has finally taken hold? And what of the darkness which shrouds those who are left behind, trying to make sense of all the broken pieces which remain? My story begins, or ends, or begins to end, with a bright light. Not just one, but several. Each one taking more of the world I loved with it, and leaving me to question everything that I ever believed. Now that I've brought you down to my level, let me introduce myself. My name is Jacob Downs, but you can call me Jake. I'm not pretending to be anyone special, not to everyone, just to one person in particular. To most, I'm a simple 26-year-old, wasting his life, stuck in a dead-end job as assistant manager at a local independent discount store. But to Millie Downs, I was everything to her, as she was to me. As long as we had each other, no one else mattered. Millie and I were the stereotypical fairy tale couple to some. We met at secondary school, shared a common interest in being considered outcast by the lifeless Stepford style carbon copy society within the school walls, and eventually fell in love. I've often thought that since we combined through our weaknesses, we were stronger than any diamond. In contrast to the fairy tales that we're compared with, she did not need to be rescued and taken to live in a palace forevermore, and I did not need to ride in on a white horse and slay dragons. I rode in driving a battered but trusty Vauxhall Nova and, stayed de- <coughs> and slayed decent rock riffs for a screaming death on my battered two-bob Telecaster held together by bumper stickers and gaffer tape. When I first saw her, Millie was the kind of girl I could leave any guy scrambling for a decent opening line just to avoid her razor-sharp wit and get caught on the bullshit radar that she seemed to have supplanted in her mind from birth. She would let you know within seconds if you'd failed the screening test. I don't for a second think that Millie is, or was ever, deflecting potential suitors at that stage as she considered herself too good for them. She just didn't fall for the guys that were ruled by their parts or their car or whatever materialistic item they used to make up for being void of a personality. She was different. It's almost like she could see into someone's soul and detect if they were sincere. If you were true to yourself, she respected you and only asked for the same in return. Back then I travelled around with three friends from throughout my school life. Damon Jacks, Simon, Dog, McGee and... Matt Wahlberg, the crew that would eventually form Cat in Hell. Though in these days, we already thought we were the shit, even though all we achieved was carrying our instruments around at school, trying to look the part. Hadn't even had a proper rehearsal, let alone a gig in front of actual people, unless you count the half-hour set at Dog's house, trying to figure out how to connect a distortion pedal to the guitar successfully whilst his mum watched and laughed, consequently. The only notoriety we managed to score around Shepherd's Beach was that we would 
we should be rechristened Cat in Distress after a couple of locals were subjected to dogs' vocal talents at open mic night at Down the Hatch. Through all of his artistic faults and inabilities, however, it was Dog I had to thank for ever getting the chance to be noticed by Millie. In our final year at Wildermore College, I spent the first month distracted at lunch whenever she was around, too rooted to the spot to move in her direction. Even Dog's persistent encouragement, even if it was in the form of, just do her so you could be less boring again, couldn't summon up my courage. He certainly had a way with words, that guy. To cut a long story short, he volunteered me for the, to be the next in line of Millie's flawlessly executed would-be's, paving the way for me to swoop in and seduce her with my charm. What actually happened involved him getting his entire upper body lodged in the canteen bin whilst trying to rescue the remainder of his cancer sticks that the head of year had disposed of, saving him a lifetime of regret, in her words, and me apologising to Millie for the noise whilst at the same time trying to pretend that I didn't know him at all. The way he sacrificed his chances with her for me that day was often a talking point from then on when faced with his train wreck of a love life for the following years. The rest, they say, is history. Although, I digress, forgive me. For I do not want to give you the impression that this is a love story. I only wish it was. But fate and the universe were to deal their own hand and take my fairy tale away with it. Some secrets and even more truth should never be told. Which is why I'm writing this on sugar paper, so they will never see it. April 22nd, 2012. Mornings had never been my forte. Even having been in the same routine for five years, still not prepared me for the piercing sound of the alarm sounding at 5.20am. Still don't understand why I always needed 40 minutes of hitting the snooze button to prepare myself for the day ahead. But that's routine, I guess. Try meddling with it, and chaos ensues. Like on this morning, the last working day before a long-awaited week's holiday was always particularly hard. The monotony of each day spent in Sir Saverlots, the central discount store in the sleepy town of Shepherd's Beach, had by this point worn me to such a degree that I'd barely acknowledged that I'd even managed to get out of bed. My body and mind needed this break, a chance to recharge and refresh. The alarm had other ideas, though, as it sounded again, causing the automatic action of the roll and slap. I rolled over onto one side, giving my right arm enough momentum to slap the snooze button once more, with minimal precious energy spent. <sighs> Ten more minutes, I silently told the clock. <laughs> Won that war again, I would tell myself, as I rolled back over and tucked my arm around the warm figure next to me, that of an angel, my Millie. Every morning was the same, the same battle going on between time and myself. I'd never win convincingly. As the time got to 5.50am I would hold Millie even tighter for the last ten minutes, not wanting to accept that I would soon have to break free from her once more. She was normally stirring too by this point, and I would hug my arm tighter and kiss her hand. The poor excuse for wages from Sir Saverlock could not compare to the moments we shared in the mornings before our respective duties would part us for the next twelve hours but no man can raise a family on those moments alone. Didn't have a family to raise, not yet, but talk had moved steadily to the subjects and become a regular discussion since we were married some two months before. Just as I was drifting off with those thoughts, the alarm jacked me back to reality with a bump. The time had come to make the break. I responded with the usual groan of disapproval and was comforted by Millie's insistence that it was just one more day. Just think, Jake, one more day, and we have a whole undisturbed week together, she said, with an irresistible smile. I know, I just wish something more exciting would come around the corner, you know what I'm like. I know, I'll be waiting for you when you finish, and we'll have an awesome night. Whenever we were gifted with any time together, we always used the first night for total relaxation in our favourite way, wine, food that was bad for us, and a movie that was bad for everyone, usually some god-awful teen comedy or horror flick. Either way, something we could laugh at. And tomorrow I finally get to give you your present, she teased. Tomorrow was my 26th birthday, and Millie always seemed to be more excited about giving me presents as I was opening them. She always gave the best gifts because she knew me better than I knew myself. You could bet she had found something I never knew I needed, 
Once I had it, I couldn't be without it. Uh, about that, I really hope you haven't spent too much. We need to seriously start thinking about saving for when the children arrive. Well, I bought you what you want, what I wanted to, and there's nothing you can do about it now. Besides, you work very hard for the money I've spent on you, she joked. We shared everything. The money was one thing we both worked hard for, often sacrificing our time together. Thanks for reminding me, I replied. Now get your ass into that shower. I still have another 20 minutes to myself, she said, as she playfully kicked me out of bed. The next part of my mornings are always a bit of a blur. I get showered and dressed into my uber-sexy lime green and yellow polo shirt and cargo trousers in time for Millie to be up out of the warmth of our bed and in the bathroom, and me just happening to time it right to catch her in the shower when I have to say goodbye. It's amazing how a quick eyeful in the morning can be enough to see a guy through the day. I kissed her goodbye, lingering for longer than I needed to. Don't spend another day putting right Andy Pandy's mistakes again, please. The guy irritates me enough and I don't even know him. Millie was referring to Andrew Black, my manager at Sir Save-A-Lots. I was notoriously his fix-it guy. He'd been picked by the regional manager for the job over me, although he was actually taking credit for my achievements and ideas. My second rejection in as many years. Millie had coined the Andy Pandy moniker from her view that he was merely a puppet to the RM who jumped every time he was asked and didn't even bother to ask how high. I gave Millie a knowing smile and a nod, in full admission that today would be like any other day, and her plea was in vain. I kissed her again and closed the bathroom door, grabbed my hoodie and begrudgingly left the house for another day. Shepherd's Beach is a town that didn't seem to rise as early in the morning as I did. My walk into the centre to work each morning did, did not present me with the opportunity to meet many of the other unlucky few. To enjoy the town in all its splendour, with a not a sound to spoil it. I've met a lot of people through my years here who have dared to describe it as boring. I could never understand how any town, with the backdrop of the vast spread of Wildermore, could do anything but amaze those within it. I often blame the name, though. We're at least ten miles from any sign of sea or sand. Legend has it that the town was christened by the farm workers of Wildermore, as it was provided a break and shelter from the harsh and cruel autumn and winter months they faced on the barren moors. As much as I may seem like I detest having to give myself to a dead-end job, I do treasure the time I have every morning on my journey in. It gives me time to clear my head of the troubles of yesterday and enable me to fill my mind with the hope of tomorrow. Okay, maybe that's a little cheesy, but it does give me time to lose myself in music for 20 minutes each day, which does act as some kind of therapy. Something was different about that morning, however. The sky was already an unsettling shade of red, as if the higher power had lit a fire somewhere in the distance and had set our earth on fire in front of it. Well, they'd gotten bored and we decorated our sky overnight with no reason to offer other than try something new. There's another odd occurrence which added to my unease. People. Odd pockets of people held in small groups, dotted along my route, and they were talking. This never really happened, not at this time anyway. Dismissed it as merely my own lack of awareness for the last five years. Why should it be strange that anyone wished to be up and about prior to 7am and be able to conduct a conversation? I slowly ambled to Sir Saverlots, fumbled with the keys to the old grey shutter window, as I always do, and readied myself for the mad dash across the store to deactivate the security alarm. 30 seconds is not enough time for anyone to conduct this practice with any amount of grace. Once I was in the staff room, I started to breathe normally again. I hadn't even noticed that my rhythmic patterns had changed at all, but suddenly I felt at peace again. Normality could now be restored. I've never been a great fan of peanuts, except if they're laid in, a, in, in an inviting bowl on Christmas Eve to be engulfed in between alcoholic beverages and too, too many fun-sized snacks, a la our usual cosy, festive celebrations. Peanuts have a time and a place. Unfortunately for me, their time was now and their place was scattered in tens of unmarked boxes in Sir Saverlot's stockroom. Yes, the biannual stock take was in full swing and I'd done something to deserve being given the task of counting each packet of these savoury delights. It wouldn't bother me as much if there weren't so many varieties though. Saverlot's bosses felt the need to stack 12 different kinds, from the usual plain or salted to those dipped in chocolate, peanut butter, which seemed to be almost pointless, and marmite on occasion. Would it hurt the manufacturers to change the colour of the packets at all too? That in itself, with more than half the time it took if you drew the, 
this short straw. Not that I was complaining much. It was a perfect way to spend my time on the last day of my stint for the next seven days. But when you've counted over 100 packets for the seventh or eighth box in a row, then find a stray packet of chilli roasted by your feet and aren't sure if you counted them or missed them, to have to start all over again, the game gets a little dull. I would choose that over spending a minute on the shop floor with Andy, however. But just as if he read my thoughts, our tireless leader graced us with his presence. Not that I have a personal problem with him, you must understand. Only that every time he appears, is to subtly present me with a new, with the chance to correct another mistake that he had managed to engineer. And quite frankly, I had neither the time nor the patience to deal with any of it today. Hey, Sporin, how's it going? Gone mad much? He asked with a smug grin, basking in his power to inflict mundanity on anyone who did nothing to deserve it. Again, there, I replied, choosing not to acknowledge the humour in his remark. If I have to start again, you'll probably return to find I've started to eat my own foot. Better those than the peanuts, I guess. I nodded in return. You're not missing much out there, he informed me, unless you find Mrs Tinnery and her Blue Rinse Brigade entertaining. Sometimes I find listening to them entertaining, I retorted. At least they have the time to talk about something other than TV. Well, it's more than they spent 20 minutes discussing the sky and raving about a shooting star that fell onto Wildermore last night. Hardly impressive stuff. The guy had no sense or individualism or could not accept that people were different to him. He especially thought that all elderly people were senile and anything they said past the age of 65 was irrelevant. Anywho, Mr Bergman's called to say he was popping in to collect the electric blanket he ordered before Christmas. Just wondered if you fancied a break from this when he comes in. You know you're his favourite staff member? Flattery will get you nowhere in reality, but since I had no problem taking time to acknowledge our customers, I could see no part, no point in arguing. Sure, come and get me when he's here. Good man. Oh, and one thing I should mention, Andy said as he pulled himself back from around the exit of the stockroom. Could you mention to him that the order for his blanket never went through? One of the temps must have forgotten to add it to the order in December. Cheers, man. Knew I could count on you. Great. I knew that that was his code for, I've screwed up and I'll be hiding in my office for the next hour. I fell for it every time. I was almost out the door at 1.45pm, a belated lunch break by my standards when Mr Bergman appeared at the door of all the things I dreaded at the store having to be the one to let down any of your elderly regulars was top of the list not least when it was Mr Bergman for he was more than just a customer he was Millie's grandfather Ralph Bergman wore the same clothes whenever he went out his trusty grey overcoat flat cap walking stick and his ever-present smile the only part that ever seemed to change was the colour of his plain woollen tank top he wore over his his plaid shirt that would depend on the day of the week. Ralph was a stickler for routine, just like me. Ralph spotted me as I approached the automatic doors. Jacob, my boy, I was hoping I'd catch you, Ralph said with his trademark smile. It's very hard not to find yourself smiling back, no matter what bad news or feelings you were harbouring. Good to see you, Ralph, I said as I took my hand, shook it and held it a bit longer. Ralph loved being around people, more so in the last four years since Millie's grandmother had passed. Millie feared that her death would destroy him, but it had built new strength from it. You're looking well. Winter hasn't been unkind to you as others, I see, I told him, referring to the sub-zero January and February the region had experienced. No, no, he protested. I'm too weathered for it for it to bother me anyhow. It's good to hear. Listen, Millie and I have been meaning to come round and see you. Just, she's been working odd hours and now, and I have too. No need to apologise, my boy. You know where I am, just give me enough notice to get cake in the oven, he beamed. Bacon had been his saviour since his wife Dora had been gone. Kept his mind and hands active. He'd always said that a man's hands were both tools and weapons. Without them, you're as good as dead. How is that granddaughter of mine? Taking care of you, I hope? Of course, more so than she should, I joked. She's good, she's still trying to shoulder the world's problems without voicing her own. Ralph nodded in agreement. Very much like her mother there. Martha never knew when to stop taking care of everyone else and start worrying about herself even to the end. Another tragic loss to Mr Bergman had been the sudden loss of his only daughter, Millie's mother. Martha was swept away by the strong current of the Wilder River whilst trying to rescue a neighbour's dog. 
the dog survived. Ralph was left with just one of one of the women in his life, Millie, who he cherished more than anything, had entrusted into my care. I'd always felt an overwhelming sense of pride at how much Ralph thought of me, knowing how much he valued and cherished Millie. Anyways, Ralph continued, I'm holding you up for your lunch. You run along, lad. I need to speak to your wonderful manager when he's actually going to go into order my electric blanket. I shot him a questioning look, but the corners of my mouth betrayed me as he formed a knowing smile. Nothing got past Mr. Bergman. Pike Guinness a day, my boy. Sharpens the mind, as he winked to support his own medical advice. I'll have to try that one. I don't think I'll be able to convince Millie of the scientific basis of your argument. Women don't understand, son. Now go. Make the most of the time you have to keep yourself away from this place, he instructed me. As I began to walk through the door, I heard him shout over to Amanda at the spot at the checkout. Now, where's Andy Pandy? I looked back just in time to see the other three floor staff trying desperately to stifle their laughter. Ralph Bergman, forever legend. I've never considered myself to be much of a loner. So I just in time to enjoy the time that I have to myself to reflect and dream mostly. I always believed there would be more to my life than simply spending my days in a local store talking to the same faces every day, never really moving forward always dreamed of being able to give Millie the life she's always wanted. My wife's tastes are not particularly extravagant or extreme. She values the smaller things in life and never wanted for money as such. Just enough so that we could live comfortably to raise a family. I've always believed that being a mother is her calling in life. She inherited her immense ability to care and nurture from her mother and because of her loss, Millie is more determined than ever to have a child of her own, our own. It's a little surprise to me in that case that my random aunt random ambling during my lunch break took me to the door of baby cakes the one-stop shop for mothers and those expectant baby cakes was the ingenious plan of a working mother to provide everything another mother would need all basic parenting needs cots buggies nappies together with a vintage style cake shop very easy way for mums to spend money and keep husbands in their jobs just a few years longer than maybe they wanted to be Never quite understood what always drew me to that place, be it my hunger and sweet tooth, not being able to resist the allure of the caramel and butterscotch cupcakes in the window, or the display of only two cute baby grows and play gyms in the window. My paternal instinct was telling me that it was the latter, particularly when faced with a pink and white jumpsuit, emblazoned with a picture of humanised pebbles on the front and the word Daddy Rocks running above it. I'd always dreamed of Millie and I starting a family, especially the thought of a daughter. Millie and I had always said that baby girl would be the making and undoing of me, that she would end up with me wrapped around her podgy little finger. I often protested this idea, although inside I knew she was spot on again. Up until this point, I'd always considered that we had built our lives together just to our plan, with the only thing left being a family. We'd been married three years before, and had just broken free of the rental trap and had bought our own home the previous summer. Ever the unconventional, neither of us cared too much for modern houses as we'd always been drawn to those with had at least an ounce of character and history to them. But needs must, we knew any brick we could stamp our name on was better than none at all, at least in the short term. I decided to stop gazing through the window like a lost puppy and entered the shop. Smell is what hits you first, a mixture of the warmth of freshly baked cakes at your grand's house on a cold winter's night and the smell of baby powder and creams. No wonder husbands always find their wives to be at home if that's what they if that's what they can concoct. I resisted the draw of the bakery counter and went straight to the clothing display, just gazing at all the phrases and innocent pictures of sheep and dinosaurs that can make this steamiest of heart the sternest of hearts resort to dust. I spied one in particular, a simple number that read cute, just like mummy, on a white baby grow with red trim. I'd always been told it was bad luck to own anything before your baby was born, but the urge overcame me to finally give Molly a sign that I believed now was the time. I wanted us to start our own legacy, I guess. We talked about our future for years, and not once had I ever been one to knock plans into first gear. Millie had always had such a strong idea of the life she wanted, and had the vision to make it happen. I'd always struggled, knowing where to even start. Before going in into deliberation, I took the tiny suit off the rail and took it to the counter. There, I thought, the first step towards a perfect family. Then I'll take a caramel and butterscotch muffin for the road. My next step would be to Betty Jane's, the place that housed the greatest treasure of all, to me anyway. 
I peered in through the window as I do each time to check how busy it is before I enter. That's when I see her. Decked out in the cutest pink checkered dress and white apron around her waist. Worn slightly towards her left hip in the rock and roll style as she could pull off. Her almost black hair tied in a bun at the back with a quiff rolled back from the front that would make Elvis proud. She was the pinnacle of Betty Jane's image of the 1950s American diner, which was scorned at by stuffy residents of Shepherd's Beach when it first opened five years ago, but was now the centre of all the social activities that kept the village going and feeling young. Millie had perfected the art of being effortlessly transporting a full tray containing two or three of the famous Betty-sized beef burgers, fries and whatever seemed like a gallon of fizzy orange in one hand, writing an order for the neighbouring table with the other while still holding somebody else in conversation at the bar and flashing everyone her award-winning smile. She was Jane of all trades and the jewel in Betty's crown. Now that early chapter was really just setting the scene for you know, this this guy Jake. You know, as, as you can see, I changed his name when I put him into the seventh season. And that that whole chapter, that scene, um, obviously wasn't put in the book. As I think I, I may have hinted at parts of it, but it was all written in third person rather than first person. So, what I loved about writing in first person is I really put myself in the character's shoes. Uh, a lot of that was drawn on myself, my own thoughts, my own experiences. Um, yeah, it was it was a very personal piece to kind of. If you if you knew me, if you're a person that knows me, you'll probably be able to find quite a few references in there to my own life. Um, up to that point, um, obviously not exact, but my frustrations. I was working in retail at the time. I think. Um, after starting off in retail and then having a logistics career for a few years and then going back to retail, I I, I professionally I didn't really see that I was going anywhere. And uh, I think I managed to reflect that in in Jacob's position in the store. It's pr- it was pretty much how I felt at the time, where um, wherever it was I was working, always felt like I was I was doing a lot of the work and and sort of not progressing myself, but other people around me were sort of almost um, piggybacking off not off of my success, but I, I could see it happen. You know, that's that's what happens, particularly in retail. I think you do get people that rise to the top, not only not always through their their own merit. But anyway, that's that's another discussion for another time. So that that chapter really was just sort of setting the scene who um, who Jacob and Millie were, the simple life they had, but the perfect you know the simple but perfect life um, that they've managed to put together for themselves. And the next chapter in the book, I had actually left a load of blank pages because I was. It was the next part was what drove me to write to write this story. So I'd left a load of blank pages because I was I was supposed to then write the story that bridged that perfect life to then what would happen. Um, so yeah, so I will uh, I will read the next part for you, and this is where we we meet Jake again after whatever's happened has happened and his world has just been turned upside down and just descended into darkness so uh, yeah hope you enjoy a chilled wind hit the back of my neck as the darkness receded my eyes struggled to open taking the image before me the image was just green dotted with random shades of brown and yellow I was facing the ground my left cheek smeared with cold damp earth I started to shiver. My clothes clung to me. The sweat poured out of me throughout the night as my body fought against the cold chill blown across the moorlands. I questioned why my body was forbidding me from mustering the strength to rise from the ground and I questioned if I was really still there. The events of the night before started to come back together but my mind still felt like a child's kaleidoscope spiralling colours and images uncontrollably failing to paint a picture that made any kind of sense. More the chaos that I felt was still around me, I was sure of only one thing. I knew she was gone. No, there's no clinging to the idea of Millie being returned to me this time. She belonged to them now, and I'd been powerless to stop them. Slowly I used what little power I had left to push myself up onto one elbow, then onto one hand and finally heave myself to sit and let my body rest against the oak tree behind me. 
stared at the house, lifeless. I was, the house was, and the moor around me offered no hint of life or redemption. In truth, I refused to believe this being I ran from was my wife. I would always believe that Millie died those few hours before in my arms where she belonged. As the shadows of the night came flooding back, I felt the familiar sting in my eyes. Memories of those last moments came, then so did the tears. I cried to have her back. I cried for letting her down. I cried for not knowing what had taken her or why. The tears streaked through the dirt on my face and wet my already sodden t-shirt. My chest ached as I sobbed and as I let the last of my being pour out of me, then nothing. Once my eyes felt like they were dry, I felt nothing. I was numb. With shock, maybe. I simply had no more to give. No love, no strength, no fear. In short, my very soul felt like it had been ripped from my body and my tears were like the afterbirth. I stared at the house, feeling and thinking nothing. I didn't even notice the black Mercedes pull up until the light shone to the corner of my eyes. My eyes shifted enough to notice the two police patrol cars, lights flashing but no sirens blaring, save for the rush of tyres on the gravel drive leading to the house. Everything remained still, as if nothing had happened to disturb its peace. My eyes met those of the officers as they shot out of the cab of their car like a bullet out of a gun, like the bullets I fired last night. The gun, the instrument that lay on the ground not two feet from where I sat, the weapon that would sure enough incriminate me. I made no attempt to conceal it. I had no motivation to run or lie. I had not an ounce of energy to even respond to Officer Alison Joy as she called out to me as she ran over. My silence would surely send, send off as many warning signals to them as the gun would. But I had nothing to say. Jake! Alison shouted again. Jake, are you okay? Stared blankly at her then stared back at the silent, lonely house. Jake, can you hear me? She asked again, shaking my shoulders as if to bring me back from wherever my mind had floated away to. Truth, my mind was still here, in the now. As I remembered, the now, to me, was now without Millie. I felt less inclined to answer to anyone. Jake, I know you can hear me. Where's Millie? The mention of her name made my soul ache, aching for her just to walk out of the front door, telling me that this was all the result of some bizarre sleepwalking episode. Where's Millie? Her tone becoming less of a concerned school friend, now of an accusatory police officer, and I was a worm on her hook. Jake, answer me! Alison's gentle coaxing, shaking of my shoulders, now had the air of a desperate attempt to revive me. Sensing that something was up, D.I. Lang now started to appear behind Alison, looking down on me. I didn't meet his gaze, but could feel his eyes boring away into the top of my head. I was right. My silence could well be my undoing. But anything I said near the truth was to land me in a loony bin, so I had to make a choice. At least, I thought, one of the choices had comfortable walls. Jake, please, talk to me. Please, Alison pleaded. I could hear her voice crack, fighting back certain tears as she was faced with the cruel reality of what could have happened. I didn't know what to believe anymore. Had I imagined it all? Did those beings, the greys, really take her away? Not only that, did I really witness what they were capable of, which they inflicted upon my Millie? Tell me what happened, Jake, D.I. Lang intruded, trying to bring the situation under his control. Was there a fight? He'd seen the gun. I knew he had. Only Alice's loyalty and friendship to me blinded her to the cold fact that I was lying next to my, what was lying next to my left hand. Slowly I managed to shake my head. Grief and confusion, I decided, must be able to manifest to such a degree as to leave a person completely numb. To an outsider, or to or a suspecting law enforcer, this could be construed as a total loss of remorse. Lang had me in his crosshairs, I decided. I was his main and only suspect for the second time in my wife's disappearance. Unlike last time, I knew she wasn't coming back. Unless I could come up with a plausible and convincing argument for her whereabouts in the presence of an automatic weapon, I was as good as cooked and... Lang would be there to take the first slice. Of course I knew that nothing I would tell him about last night would help me in any way. I all but gave up hope. 
I could see the tears start to form in Alison's eyes as she knelt closer to me, drawing me nearer. Please, Jake, you must tell us what happened and where Millie is. We know she was not well when she returned. I turned my head and looked at her, trying to offer an explanation of hope while searching her face for answers of my own. My throat was dry and I felt as if I'd lost the ability to form words, but I managed to break the silence. She's gone, I said. Hearing those words almost put me on the cusp of my own outburst of tears, but I lacked the energy. Where is she? Alison replied, knowing well that I neither had the knowledge nor wanted them to find her. I tried, Ali, I tried. There was too many of them. My voice trailed as I broke down once more, hearing myself say the words once more and twisted the knife that fate had plunged in my back two weeks before. Who was it, Jake? Oh my God, what has happened? She offered as she pulled me close into my head on her shoulder. We need you to talk to us, okay? We need you to find out who came after Millie and find her. Pulled my head away from her embrace, shook my head almost mockingly. She's nowhere you will find her. I can't even tell you where that is. You're making no sense, Alison replied. He's making perfect sense to me, Lang stated. I went and locked up and the house searched, he told Officer Joy, then turned to face me. You're not fooling me again, boy. I've got you with a gun in your hand, and now I just need the blood you spill with it, and I've got you. Lang forced me to my feet, my legs not feeling like they could support me. Lang pushed me roughly by the neck, dragged me to the awaiting open door of his Vauxhall Insignia patrol car and piled me into the back seat. Head first, my face smacked against the inside of the opposite rear door, stinging the greys that had now been bathed in mud. I could hear Alison trying to reason with Lang as he unfolded me into my new prison. If you want to do your job properly, Miss Joy, bag up that weapon and lead the search team into the house. I want that body found by nightfall. Hearing him reduce the horrors of last night and the being that was my wife to clinical chundering like that made my blood boil. He had no idea of what could possibly have happened to Millie. But he'd made his mind up. In that first minute he'd seen me a fortnight ago. In his mind this was merely a case of domestic violence gone wrong. All right. Just as soon as I managed to get myself together upright and take stock of this sh- Take stock of the shift that had just occurred. Lang's stone-cold, empty, accusatory face appeared at the window of the car. Looks like I'm not the only bird that's caught the worm, boy, he said. I've got some vultures to contend with. As he motioned towards the direction of the black Mercedes, which had arrived at the same time Lang and Joy did. I sat... She's been sat waiting and watching couldn't have been less surprised to see them there. Truman had warned me that they would find me by now. I'd done so well to have gotten this far, I guess. Fatigue was starting to take hold, and as I turned my back to look at the Mercedes, it fell to rest on the top of my... As I turned my head to look at the Mercedes, it fell to rest at the top of my seat behind. Struggling to hold my eyes open, knowing the importance of trying to stay conscious and alert, Lang was far outside my circle of trust and I didn't dare think what he would do to he would try to do to me when I was in the state of awareness, let alone when I was asleep. It was no use though. For the second time in twenty four hours a bigger force than me was at work. My body was slowly giving in, crying out for a period of recovery it so badly needed, not to mention my mind. I watched through the rear window once more as Lang approached the Mercedes. I saw two figures climb out of the car. I estimated them to both be over six and a half feet tall, decked in black suits and ties, looking as if they'd just returned from the Godfather's wake. They clambered out as if they were exiting a clown car, dwarfing Lang, which I took no small amount of satisfaction in. I saw Lang shake their hands in turn, and motion towards the vehicle I now lay in, as the darkness enveloped me once more. seemed almost as if, as soon as my eyes grew accustomed to the darkness again, they were being forcibly prized open by the searing light that was surrounding me. At first I put it down to just a dream, if you can call it that. My mind being transported back to the previous night, back to the light that had taken away my beloved Millie. I saw tall shadows once again moving towards me, reaching out with their menacing, bony hands. What did they want? Had they not taken enough from me already? 
Have they already disposed of the one that was once my wife and were now coming for me? The light softened as my eyes adjusted, trying desperately to make sense of the space around me. Good news was, I was no longer in the cramped space of Lang and Joy's patrol car. Bad news was, I was still trying to answer the question of where I was now. I was also still handcuffed with my hands behind my back, that I could tell. I could also feel the cold, impersonal touch of the cuffs and a burning in both my shoulders. I must have been in this position for several hours, as my wrists had been reduced to bands of pins and needles. My legs also felt numb. I was cross-legged on what I could tell was a very thinly carpeted floor. The feel of the cold was muted by the rug beneath me, but there was no consolation for the feel of the smooth, unforgiving cement beneath that. Attempting to shift my weight ever so slightly forward, I felt a sudden rush through my calves and upper thighs as the blood flowed back through to my muscles as if it had been contained in a lock, waiting to send the next narrowboat through on its course. The rush turned to a jolt of pain from the bottom of my spine down to the tops of my feet, enough to make me exclaim my discomfort. The sound of my voice sounding harsh and foreign to me it must have been no longer, it must have been longer than I first thought. I decided. My throat was raw. My words unrecognisable. The shapes of the shadow figures before me started to shift. Stick-like limbs appeared, started to appear independent of the trunk they were attached to, and I could just make out finer lines of their heads, the nose and the chin parted to create a mouth. One of the shadows was growing larger as I sat there transfixed, the light still burning the backs of my eyes. The shape shifted yet again as it grew larger, drawing closer. My fight or flight response would have been to kick in soon, I told myself, though I was in no better position to, <clears throat> to obey either command. The shadow grew a longer limb, an arm, I guess, as I could hear its soft, deliberate footsteps grow more reminiscent of a sound I once knew. I knew I had to try to escape its grip before it had a chance to lay a finger or whatever it had on me. Nothing was beyond imagination to me anymore, and I'd seen too much to not be scared of any element of the unknown, for I had even less answers for the questions I didn't even know I wanted to ask. The bulbous shape of its head was pulling nearer could feel and smell its sweet breath on my cheek. They could breathe at least, I thought. At least I had a way of shutting them down if I ever needed the chance. Suffocation and asphyxiation can bring down the most fearsome of giants, no matter how big. The figure was too close for me to react, though. I'd missed my chance. Sacrificed precious moments that I could have used devising a way to wrestle my way out of my cuffs. I let them too close to me, and now... They would take me apart as they had to Millie. I felt long fingers grip my shoulder, not cold and rough like I had feared, but warm and soft to the touch, almost comforting. The head was now staring at me full on, but I could not focus beyond the light that was still keeping my sight at bay. Before I could try and roll my, roll my way out of this trap, I heard a quick, sharp intake of breath, like a respirator being jump-started into action. Then the shadow spoke. Get Lang, she said. He's awake. Fourteen hours have passed since they had removed me from the scene, they told me. I passed out in the back of the patrol car and Allison had driven me back to the station under Lang's orders. Although I have no recollection of those hours, my rest was fitful, apparently. Senseless muttering, shivering and sweating whilst laying on the cot bed in the dark of the holding cell. Alison had been worried that I was suffering seizures as a result of some hidden head trauma or post-traumatic shock, or as a result of a night with it under the stars and on a barren plain in April. It had taken Alison a few hours of trying to find Lang's compassionate side, about as easy as finding a panther in a coal mine during a power cut, until he opens his mouth, of course, and appealing to him to have me moved. He had at last, at last relented, but only as far as having me taken to be held in the station's revamped interrogation room. There's plenty of light in there. Since he's scared of the dark, seemingly, means we can we can crack straight on trying to break into his mind as soon as he decides he's going to cooperate and wake up, he told Officer Joy. You know, I can't abide time wasters. As soon as I had come around from my restoration period, Lang had been alerted immediately by his duty sergeants, bounded into his office with as much swagger as an overpaid MP and a look of disdain to match. 
He just stood staring at my at my sorry form, almost bent double as the pain was setting in inside my hips and my thighs. My eyes were still struggling to adjust to the glare, but his disapproval was almost as clear to feel as it would be emitted by microwaves. I could feel his glare burning a hole in the top of my head, trying to cook the skin to, trying to cook my skin at ten paces. Well, he asked one of his sergeants. Don't just stand there. Get him on the chair. Joy. Make sure there's a new tape in that, he said, motioning to the single tape recorder on the desk. I want to make sure we get all this. The young officers, both no more than 20 years old each, still with the innocence and lack of confidence, the two schoolboys being reprimanded by the demon headmaster for the first time, reached down and clumsily grabbed me under the elbows. Neither possessed the strength or even the coordination it seemed to lift me to my feet of their own accord. Truth be told, as they were bare bearing any of my weight it alliterated the pains in my back and my legs or alleviated the pains in the back of my legs if only for a few fleeting seconds I decided to cooperate and help push myself with my legs and scrambled with them to part that I could stand once able to support my own frame and straighten up they released their grip I was too tired for niceties and as one of them looked into my face he quickly backed away, almost like a threatened cat who retreats to the heel of their master. Lang motioned silently at the empty chair in front of me. Any chance of releasing these cuffs so I can have my arms back, as nature intended? I asked, referring to the rear-facing position they'd been forced into since my capture. Lang scoffed as if I was asking him to show me the whereabouts of the Holy Grail. <laughs> a suspect making demands? He mocked. If you want me to cooperate, you will want me to be comfortable. If you want me to eventually pass out of this table at the crucial point, then don't. It'll give you something to explain to the commissioner. Your choice. And that concludes the second and only chapter that I've got in this fairly battered notebook of Chasing Grey. So um, there is a gap in the middle between the two chapters. I didn't realise till I wrote until I read that back. Um, there is a part of the part of the story missing really I think that I, I must have written down somewhere else but the idea behind the story was um, so in the beginning you got Millie and Jake in their very normal life and over something happens over the next few nights I think it was when we left them um, so he, he has his birthday and something something happens that night or a few nights later um, they Jake is awoken at night by something. He goes downstairs to investigate, and he, the the house is then um, just lit up. It's, it's brilliant white light, blinding, freezes him to the spot, and then he just has to watch as these this group of beings appear as shadows and very tall, bulbous heads, the typical sort of grey aliens. Um, descend into his house um, to get very close to him close enough that they almost touch him but they don't and he's he's just tortured really he's he's frozen to the spot and you can just hear what's going on upstairs and you can hear Millie's cries as they get to her and they take her um, and the story carries on in the next couple of weeks he is trying to make sense of what happened while also aching for his his wife who was ripped from him in the most horrific of fashions. And um, this is where he would link up then with Truman Dark, who we all know uh, was one of the main characters, particularly through the, the first two parts of the World of War Apocalypse trilogy. He was he was like the good cop. Um, he, he believed Jake was innocent, that he didn't murder his wife, um, where D.I. Lang on the other side obviously um, thinks the worst of everyone so immediately thinks it's just a, a case of domestic abuse gone wrong or right as I, as I put in that one of those chapters then um, but what happens uh, Millie is returned to him one night um, by the beings, by the greys and she's not herself she's not well she's gone she's she doesn't speak she there's no life in her at all even though she's awake 
and he just wants to leave he just wants to take her away to where she's safe and Truman helps them or tries to help them escape and they go into the middle of nowhere into a house where it's just them miles away from everyone else and one night um, Millie succumbs to whatever it was that was growing inside her as a result of her abduction and she transforms into one of these greys herself um, Jake falls asleep with her in her in his arms one night wakes up in that house and she's gone and he finds her upstairs in the bathroom and, and uh, yeah the, the image of her sort of in part transformation was one that really stuck with me and I never made it to write that part uh, and that was a bit where he, he then he it's just riddled with turmoil he um, he can't decide he struggles to accept that it's not his wife and he but he needs to survive he needs to save his own life and he ends up fleeing through the house and eventually spills to the to the outside and he he manages he's got this gun on him and he manages to shoot her or it whatever Millie had become um, and then the beings return while he's outside just spent just observing again this scene and then they return and after that her remains have gone and uh, and that's where it brings you up to to the point that he's outside and um, he's found them by Alison Joy and Thomas Lang and they sort of take him away so elements of that that part of the story were definitely lifted and put into the sewing season because to the idea behind Jacob Crow's story as he became um, with Millie being abducted by the Reaper and his Umbra army is it's it's odd to say that there is a more supernatural version of this story you know being alien abduction it's fairly paranormal um, but I think what ended up in the sewing season was more supernatural I I, I carried on with chasing grey i came up with a slightly different story arc which again ended up actually going into the world war apocalypse it's one that i'll i'll speak more about again because i've got some more material on the next phase of chasing grey on my laptop somewhere um which involves dean morden who was my equivalent of a fox Mulder type character and he comes across in of gods and insects so he makes it into Voldemort as well so both of my attempts at writing this alien abduction story Chasing Grey actually ended up in two parts of the World of More Apocalypse trilogy so I I was still at that time trying to wrestle this this story out in its own form and elements of it were just too good for me to ignore and I ended up having to put them in to the book I was writing at the time so um, so yeah I will try and dig that out I'll, uh, for another episode and um yeah, I mean, hit me up with some feedback for how this is my first time I really sat down and read any of my stuff and I do apologise for parts of that that were a little bit either muffled or sounded a little bit confused that was my, my handwriting is is especially when I, I get excited and I'm writing really quickly it's, it's fairly illegible so and this is the first time in probably six years seven years i've actually gone back and read it so um so apologies for that but i wanted you to have it in its rawest form so uh so i hope you enjoyed that i will come back next week where i will be reading some um material from across the three world and more books um as we kind of go into the the final few episodes of of what i would class as the first series of uh dead man talk so um so yeah join me back again next week and uh please keep listening keep sharing keep telling your friends um you can find me on instagram at author.tetralblay you can find me on facebook look for dead men's tales publishing um and or if you're on twitter uh you can find me at tetralblay and yeah any feedback you know follows comments anything um you know feel free i'd love to love to hear from you guys and and what you uh what you think of my work what you think of the podcast or anything really so uh, i enjoy enjoy getting all the, all the comments anything that i can respond to 
Okay, before I go, this is this week's this day in history. So July the seventh. Um, there's one really good one on there that I'm going to save to the end. Oh, uh, this day, July seventh, back in 1928, sliced bread is sold for the first time. Who would have thought that? On the inventor's 48th birthday, by the Chillicothe Baking Company of Chillicothe, Missouri. Um, this day, 1954, Elvis Presley makes his radio debut when WHBQ Memphis, Memphis played his first recording for some record. That's all right. And this just had to happen, really. Um, this episode was just meant to be. So this day, July the 7th in 1947, the famed Roswell incident, the supposed crash of an alien spaceship near Roswell in New Mexico, occurs. So, yeah, anyone believe in fate? There we go, because I only planned this episode about sort of 20 minutes before I recorded it. And there was obviously a reason for it. So there we go. Um... Thank you again for listening in. Um, follow me, comment, subscribe, everything you can to support the podcast. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really really enjoying doing this, and it's um, even if it's just me talking to myself or one other person, you know, this has been fantastic for me to even rediscover my my own work that I may have forgotten about and maybe breathe new life into it. Who knows? Out of the out of this episode, I may actually um, one day have chasing gray out there next to the world of more apocalypse and long way to the moon and all that so one can dream so thank you very much and i'll speak to you next week mm-hmm.